In 2006, I intentionally jumped out of a perfectly good airplane from 13,000 feet. And skydiving was one of those things that had always been on my bucket list, but frankly, I didn't know if I'd ever have the courage to actually do it. And it just happened that we were on vacation with my son, and uh, he and I decided, you know, why not? The reality is there's lots of reasons why not, but we decided to do it anyway. And, you know, I don't, we went through this orientation where they showed us how the gear worked and they had this video and it's about a two or three hour process of getting ready to, to skydive. But I don't think that I was mentally prepared for a couple of things. First of all, I don't think I fully appreciated how high 13,000 feet is. And I'll save you some math. It's about two and a half miles, but that doesn't make it any closer. It's 13,000 feet. You know, and they gave us an altimeter to wear on our hands so that we would kind of know where we were. And as we got into the plane, we loaded on the plane. I'm sitting in the plane. The plane takes off and I'm looking out the window and I didn't want to look at my altimeter the whole way. So I waited until I thought we were pretty high. And I looked at my altimeter and it said a thousand feet. <laughs> and I said, this is, this is going to be tougher than I thought. The other thing I learned, or I wasn't prepared for rather, is that planes go kind of fast. You know, I mean, those planes were going probably 150 miles an hour or so. And, you know, when you, when you see somebody, if you've ever seen video, and maybe that video, you see people that drop out of planes, they go straight down, right? That's how it works. Well, let me tell you, when you're going 150 miles an hour, they don't go down, they go that way. And so the, I was like the, one of the last ones to jump off, and like four or five people in a row, they just... They, walked, they went out the door and then they were just disappeared. They were gone. And in 20 seconds, they were a quarter mile that way and about a half a mile down that way. They weren't just going straight down. Then it came my turn and I, and I inched toward the door and looked down and there was nothing but 13,000 feet of sky between me and the ground. And I'm thinking, what was I thinking when I signed up for this? But they told me, said, listen, now we're not going to push you. You actually have to jump. So I took a deep breath and I jumped. And the first thing that happened is I did like a turtle thing, a cockroach thing. I turned to my back and my feet and my hands were in the sky. And the first thing I thought, <laughs> thought that went through my mind is that this wasn't in the training video. I don't remember this part at all. But somehow we got righted and then began a 45-second free fall at 120 miles an hour with the wind roaring in my ears and the cheeks flapping. You've seen the video of that, right? And then finally we get down and we pull the parachute. And I don't know if you've ever done a parachute thing or not, but there's not a lot of roar of wind in that thing. It's just as quiet and still as it can be. And so we floated down to the ground and it was over. Now, how many of you have never or now will never jump out of an airplane? How many of you? Raise your hand. Okay, look around. Everybody with their hands up, these are the ones that are all smarter than me. Okay, just, just, just to set the record straight here, okay? So, but even though you've never jumped out of a plane and you never intend to, as I told my story, you encountered skydiving didn't you? In your mind, you're going through the steps, you're getting on the plane, you're going up in the air, you're looking out and you're seeing what things look like. You go toward the door and you look out and you had this experience that you were, let's say, counter that you were in your mind 
doing a skydive. You may have imagined what the jump was like, what the fall was like, what the parachute was like. Now, how many of you have actually skydived? Okay, there's a few. So now for you, when I told that story, and it was the exact same story you heard, right? When I told that story, I imagined that you had a skydiving experience. Probably your hands got sweaty, your pulse quickened, shallow breathing, right? You heard the roar of the wind in your ears. For you, there was a big difference between an encounter and an experience. And there's a, there's a big difference between these two, these two perspectives, isn't there? I mean, from an encounter, I mean, from an encounter standpoint, it's, it's really kind of detached, it's, it's impersonal. There's a degree of separation there. It's, in, in, in one sense, it's kind of an intellectual exercise, isn't it? But an experience is something else. It is in, intense. It is intimate. It is personal. There is a visceral response sometimes in an experience. And you might say, well, let me, let me ask it this way. That leads me to a question. And my question that I want us to consider today, that I want you to consider today is, are you experiencing God or are you encountering God? Are you experiencing God or are you encountering God? And you may be perfectly content to just brush up against God every once in a while. Or do you have an intimate experience with God? Do you know him intimately? And I'm not, I'm not talking about a, a experiential thing, experience that is emotional that kind of comes and goes. I'm talking about a, a deep in your soul, life changing experience. See, many people admire Jesus. A lot of people like what he taught, but very few know him. A lot of people encounter God, but they don't recognize him. There may be a relationship that's restored, and they call it circumstances. Or maybe God blesses their family, and they just chalk it up to luck. Or it could be that God answers their prayers, and they consider it a coincidence. See, they encountered God, but they don't really know him. And it might be surprising to you to find that there is a 3,000-year-old Bible verse that talks about this dichotomy between an encounter and an experience. And we're going to look at that this morning. It's found in Psalms. You know, last summer, I mean, last fall, uh, we did as a church, many of us did the Blackaby's, Henry Blackaby's Experiencing God study. And through Experiencing God, I was introduced to this verse that is tucked inside one of David's Psalms. It's a very short verse. And let's look at Psalm 103.7. It says, He, meaning God, made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. There's another translation that says he revealed his character to Moses and his deeds to the people of Israel. Did you catch that? There's a difference between knowing what God does and knowing him. And this verse is tied to a story. Last week, 
Caleb kind of encapsulated that story, but I'm going to review it for us real quickly. We may know more about Moses than we know about any other person in the Bible. Moses was born to an Israelite woman when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, and they'd been enslaved for 300 and plus years. He was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, grew up in the royal palace. He ultimately killed an Egyptian, hit him in the sand, had to go hide in the desert. And it was there that God encountered him via a burning bush and said, listen, I want you to go back and lead my people out of Egypt. And Caleb last week broke that down beautifully about how how God, the excuses that Moses came up with about why he wasn't good enough to do that or he wasn't the right person to do that. But God said, I want you to go lead my people out of Israel. And so if you're familiar with the story, the, subsequently there were 10 plagues that God uh, brought upon the, uh, uh, the Egyptians. And Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt to the promised land. Now, the fact that they were released from slavery is phenomenal in and of itself. But on their journey, the Israelites were eyewitnesses to some spectacular miracles along the way. Let's look at one of them in Exodus chapter 14. It says, That night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind, and he turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and a wall of water on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and their horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea went back into its place. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and the horsemen and the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. I'm sure that there wasn't one Israelite that missed what God did there. 45 days later, God did the spectacular again. He provided food in the desert for a million people over 40 years. Look at Exodus 16, two chapters later. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. And when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. And when the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they didn't know what it was. But Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. The people of Israel called the bread manna. Now, they all saw what God did. Every one of them knew what God had done in the Red Sea and with the manna. And I'm sure that every Israelite was thrilled to receive God's protection, God's provision, and God's blessing. Moses walked across the Red Sea just like the rest of the Israelites did. Moses ate the manna just like everybody else did. But Moses wanted to experience beyond the blessing of God, to know the character of God. Moses wasn't interested in just God's activity. He longed to see a lot more than God's activity. He longed to see God himself. And as a result, Moses had a profound personal experience with God. Exodus 33 says, The Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. See, Moses knew God differently, much differently than all the other Israelites. To them, 
He was the God of their long dead ancestors. To Moses, he was alive and he was personal. So that brings me back to my original question. Are you experiencing God or are you just encountering him? Do you know God or do you just know about God? Is he alive? Is he personal to you? You might say, well, I'm not sure, but really, what difference does it make? See, Moses was not an isolated incident. There are other people, there are many other people that, that experienced God that we read about in Scripture. Let's look at one of them in John chapter 8. This is a story that may be familiar with, her, with you. It says, at dawn he, meaning Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat at dawn to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Think about that. This wasn't a woman that they, they accused of being in adultery. This isn't one that somebody said was an adulteress. They caught her, what? In the act of adultery. So you can use your imagination for that. So she's brought in. There's all these people standing around. It says, and they made her stand up before the group. Can you imagine? Made her stand up before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commands us to stone such a woman. What do you say? I imagine that you could have cut the tension with a knife, waiting to hear what Jesus was going to say. We get a little commentary here. It says they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who, who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left and the woman was standing there again. Get the visual of this. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. See, her accusers encountered Jesus. The crowd that was standing around encountered Jesus. But I'm here to tell you that this woman experienced Jesus. And it was totally different. You know, maybe you have grown up in church and you've gone to camp and you've been part of a youth group and all those kinds of things. And church is just one of those, it's a routine. It's just one of those things you do. Or maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum. You said, I've never really been part of a church. I don't even, if I'm honest, don't even sure how I got here today. I'm not sure why I'm here. But regardless of where you are on that spectrum, maybe this Jesus thing feels like you're just kind of hedging your bets. Just in case Jesus is legit, just in case God is real, I, I want to be on the right side of history here. Maybe you're helping in, key, in, in We World or Kid Nation. Maybe you've gone on a global adventure. 
But you know down deep that something's missing. You know stories about God, but when you hear me talk about a deep experience with Jesus, if you're honest with yourself, you'd acknowledge that you don't know a deep in your soul Jesus like that. I've traveled around the world approximately three dozen times, I think. There's a universal truth that I've discovered. From Bamako to Bihar to Boston, regardless of economic conditions, social status, regardless of the demographic, everyone, and I do mean everyone, has a deep desire for joy. Now, they may call it something else, but at the end of the day, what they really want, what people really want is a deep, they have a deep desire for joy. And I'm not, it's not happiness, which is based on circumstances, but joy. Everyone desires this deep in the soul joy that, that rises above our circumstances, or as, as Mike taught last month, is, is it flows deeper than our pain. Can I tell you something? You'll never experience real joy. True, real joy. You'll never experience it until you experience, not just encounter, but until you experience Jesus. An intimate, personal Jesus. You know, when I look back over my life, it kind of evenly divides into roughly even thirds. And in the first third of my life, I was introduced to Jesus. And I was committed to him, but there was no evidence, nothing changed in my life. Until about 10 years later when I lost my, my best friend in an accident, I came to realize that there, there was more to following Jesus than just lip service. And that began a journey for me that continued into the second third of my life, we got married, we had children, we were involved in a great church. And if you'd have known me then, you would have said, that guy has got it together. That guy has got it going on. Because even, but, but let me tell you, even though there were times when I was spiritually in tune and, and involved in the things of God, largely I was living on the periphery. Oh, I was following Jesus unless Monday Night Football was on or the World Series or something else that I wanted to do. See, it wasn't until about the year 2000 that I realized there's much more to being a disciple of Jesus than I had encountered in the, in the previous two-thirds of my life. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Can I tell you, and I, and I, and I say this um, with shame, I guess, that it, it has not been until the last third of my life that I've realized that there is a deep in my soul joy that comes from being an obedient follower of Jesus. He has led me through difficult decisions. He's provided peace and turmoil, joy and uncertainty. 
It's a lot different than an encounter. And you might be sitting here thinking, okay, so how can I know and experience that Jesus? Because my, my encounter is not like that. I'm going to give you three steps. And I'm going to tell you right now that when I finish the three steps, afterwards you're going to say, that's it? <laughs> that's all you got? Yeah, that's all I got. Because the power of the gospel lies in its simplicity. It's not complicated. There are no man-made hoops to jump through. If we deny the simplicity of the gospel, we're actually denying the power of God to transform lives. So the first step, if I want to experience Jesus, if I want to experience God in all of his fullness, the first step is I must acknowledge who God is. You know, at Grace Point, we, have, we say our vision statement is that we have an authentic church for those who have given up on the church but haven't given up on God. And you might say, well, you know, I really haven't given up on God yet, but, and I get it. I get it. Religion is man-made, man's attempt to reach God. Religion is falls so woefully short. You know, there's one major belief system that, that promotes a God of power and revenge. There's another that worships the God that is silent and largely indifferent to human suffering. And yet another belief system that offers a God that is mysterious and unknowable. But there's only one faith, Christianity, with a personal God that's known for his sacrificial love. Ben Fielding said it like this, heaven, which is God's space, and earth, human space, were one. But sin fractured the union of heaven and earth. The beauty of the gospel is that God's solution was not to come down from earth to airlift us out of, out of, down from heaven to airlift us out of earth, but rather to bring heaven down to earth in such a way that it would renew everything. And that's the difference between Religion and relationship. That's the difference between a casual encounter and an intimate experience. Or maybe you've already given up on God. And you'd say perhaps the biggest roadblock, the biggest hindrance to me experiencing God is my personal history. Maybe with your your family history. And to you, God is a distant God. Perhaps because you're Your dad was unavailable. He was uninvolved. He was detached. And for you, then, your image of God is a disconnected God, a distant God that just kind of pops into your life ever so often. Or perhaps your image of God is an angry God. Perhaps your your father used to come home and kick the dog and say unkind things to your mother and actually scared you to the point where you would go hide under the bed legitimately. And that is created an image of God in your mind that God is an angry God just waiting to punish and waiting to take it out on people. Andy Stanley identified some other gods that we, we invent based on our expectations. The first one was bodyguard God. Okay, now bodyguard God takes care of you and kind of makes sure you don't get in trouble. So the problem, though, with bodyguard God is that we know bad things happen to people. And so when these bad things happen, we start wondering, does God really care? 
And this, this notion of a bodyguard God falls apart. Maybe your image of God is, is, is a boyfriend God. See, boyfriend God is here to make you feel good. When boyfriend God is around, you, we feel good. Problem with boyfriend God is, if I don't feel good, then I wonder, where is God? Has, has he left me? Maybe he's not around right now. Or how about this one? On-demand God. See, on-demand God responds to our request for health and wealth and happiness. <laughs> but when I don't get what I think I sincerely need, then I have to wonder, is God really good? Or how about guilt God? And we've all been familiar with guilt God. He controls and manipulates people through, through shame and fear. And if one of these gods is your perception, if one of these gods is your understanding of God, and that's the reason that you're cautious about God or you're, you're skeptical about God, I got good news for you. Those gods don't exist. They never existed. You want to know who God is? You want to know what he's like? Let's look at what he does. In John three sixteen. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. There's no other faith system, no other belief system that there, in which features a God that so loved that he gave. Most belief systems, God demands. But Christianity says that God so loved that he gave his only son. In Romans, it says, God showed his love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, before we did anything to earn God's love, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God is love. That's who God is. And until I embrace who God is and embrace the fact that he loves me unconditionally, I will never fully experience God. So number one is I must acknowledge who God is. Number two, I must recognize that I am a sinner. And I'm in desperate need of a Savior. You know, it's not popular to talk about sin anymore. It's one of those things, we do, even in church, people don't like to talk about sin. But we know we're not perfect. We know everyone's failed. Most people are just hoping for a sliding scale of justice and they end up on the correct side of that. But listen to how Paul described us. And this is a Paul who started out as a, as a persecutor of Christians. He killed Christians until he had a personal encounter with Jesus. Look at, what, look at what Paul, how Paul describes us. In Ephesians chapter 2, <clears throat> And you were dead... In the trespasses and sins which you once walked. You know, we kind of think of ourselves as sick. And there's an opportunity to be cured. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says we're dead. We were dead in our trespasses. We were following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now in work. In the sons of disobedience. That's us. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature... Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Dead, sons of disobedience, children of wrath 
If we stopped there, it'd be bad news, wouldn't it? But stick with me because the good news is coming. Next verse. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The message translation says it like this. It wasn't so long ago that you were mired in that old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief, and then you exhaled disobedience. We did it all. We all did it, rather. All of us doing what we felt like doing, when we felt like doing it, all of us in the same boat. It is a wonder that God didn't lose his temper and do away with a whole lot of us. Instead, immense in mercy and with an incredible love, he embraced us. He took away, he took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. You know, many people think there should be more ways to heaven. I'd suggest we should be thankful there's any way to heaven. Max Lucado said, our Savior kneels down and gazes upon the darkest acts of our lives. But rather than recoil in horror, he reaches out in kindness and says, I can clean that if you want. And from the basin of his grace, he scoops up a palm full of mercy and washes our sin. Until I acknowledge that I am a sinner and in desperate need of a Savior, I will never experience a God of love, and of grace, and of mercy. So we must acknowledge who God is. We must recognize that we are sinners. And thirdly, we must make a choice. You know, nowhere did Jesus say it was okay to be a lukewarm follower of his. In fact, we see just the opposite. In Luke chapter 9, he said, Jesus said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Let me circle back to my skydiving experience. I think there's three spiritual parallels between that and actual skydiving. The first is the idea of belief versus faith. You know, I believed that the airplane would get me up in the sky safely. I believed that when I was buckled to the dive master or whatever he's called behind me, that he knew what he was doing. I believed that a parachute would open when we pulled the cord. But when did I demonstrate faith? See, I believed all those things, but when did I demonstrate faith? Was it when I inched toward the the, uh, airplane? Was it when the plane took off? Was it as, I, as the door flew open and that rush of wind and as I went close? No, see, none of those demonstrated faith. My faith became belief when I hurled myself into 13,000 feet of air. That's when I showed my faith. And so it is with Jesus. See, you can believe a lot of things about God. But until you completely turn your life over to him, you haven't demonstrated faith. All you've got is a set of beliefs. 
Second thing is is that skydiving is an individual decision. I mean, if I wanted to skydive, I actually had to go up in a plane and jump out of, and jump out of it, as obvious as that may sound. My friends and my family, they couldn't skydive for me, could they? And the same thing is true about Jesus. When you put your faith in Jesus, the decision is yours and yours alone. Nobody can experience Jesus for you. The third thing had to do with cost. Now, before jumping, it was easy to say, man, that, that thing costs way too much. It's going to take a half a day. I got to learn about the, yeah, I got to go in there and do that video and I got to sign my life away on contracts and on and on and on, fly up in the air and on and on and on. And that didn't even count the amount of actual cost money that it cost me to skydive. That was beforehand. Afterward, however, the idea of cost seemed preposterous. I mean, what price would have been too high for that experience? And so it is with Jesus. Before you commit to follow Jesus, the cost may, be, may seem prohibitive. What you have to give up, it may be a relationship, a, a lifestyle, a habit. But what you have to give up may be too much of a sacrifice. But as those who are fully experiencing Jesus will attest, there is no price too high to pay for a personal intimate relationship with the one who created you. There's no price too high. We'll finish with a, with a story. A story about two boys, 12 years old, late 1800s, lived on a farm. Their names were Jimmy and Billy. And they heard that the circus was coming to town. And they'd never seen a circus. In their part of the world, they hadn't seen a circus. There had never been one. And they wanted to go to the circus. And so Jimmy went home and he told his dad, he said, hey, the circus is coming to town. Can I go see the circus? And they didn't have a lot of money. But, but his dad knew that this, this circus was important to his son. And so he said, son, if you get all your chores done before Saturday when the circus gets here and I've got some extra chores, I will give you the money for the circus. And so sure enough, Jimmy did all that he was supposed to do. He did all his chores. He did everything. He was done. Saturday came. And Saturday, went, he went to his dad and he said, Hey, Dad, I got all my chores done. I'm ready to go to the circus. And his dad pulled out a $1 bill. He didn't have a lot of money, but he gave his son a dollar for the circus. Jimmy was so excited. I mean, his feet hardly even touched the ground. He ran to Billy's house. He says, You got your dollar? Okay, fine. They went running to town. As they got to town, there was a great crowd of people around Main Street. Because see, the parade, the pre-circus parade was coming through town. And they wanted to get up close and see. And Jimmy was kind of small, and so he couldn't see from the back. And so he kind of weaseled his way through the people and been there. He got to the very front row. And somewhere in the process, he lost Billy. Didn't know what happened to him. But he's standing there watching the circus parade. He'd never seen anything like this circus parade. I mean, they had acrobats. They had jugglers. There was a band. There were caged animals. It was the grandest thing that he had ever seen. And it went on for quite some time. Finally, at the end of the parade, they had the traditional circus clown. You know, the guy with the big floppy shoes and the baggy pants and the painted face and the colored hair. 
And the circus clown was going around shaking people's hands. And when he got to Jimmy, Jimmy reached in his pocket and gave him his dollar. And then Jimmy turned around and went home. And he said, man, that was great. That circus was great. The next day, Jimmy met up with his friend Billy. And he said, wasn't the circus great? And Billy said, no kidding. What did you think when, I was in, when you saw me in the ring with all those animals? Wasn't it cool that the, the trainer listed me up on the shoulders of the elephant? Man, wow, where where were you? And it was only then that Jimmy realized that he hadn't seen the circus at all. All he'd seen was the parade. So I ask again, are you encountering Jesus or are you experiencing Jesus? I have one other question for you. What are you going to do? With Jesus. What are you going to do with Jesus? Just by being here today, you've brushed up against God. You've encountered Jesus just by virtue of your presence here today. But maybe as I'm talking, you've you've said, you know, I don't have a deep in my soul experience like you're talking about. Do you want to be content to encounter Jesus or do you want to really know him? Maybe today you've said, you know, I'm like that guy in the second third of your life. I've, I've honestly been living on the periphery. But I want to know that deep in my soul, Jesus, that you're talking about. If that's you, I'm going to invite you to take one of those communication cards from the seat back in front of you. Really simple. Put your contact information on one side and on the other side just say, I want to talk to somebody. That's it. As the band plays, I want you to consider what are you going to do about Jesus?